Super Talk Mississippi media production. This is Jack Hoffman. For nearly 31 years, Tico Steakhouse has been a staple for fine dining in Jackson, Mississippi. I would like to invite you to come experience our family tradition of our hospitality, sizzling steaks, and healthy poured beverages. East County Lime Road in Ridgeland, 601-956-1030. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines. And join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music we kick off uh this is day two of the first full week of the second month (laughs) not that everybody doesn't know that i'm i'm just uh kind of blown away by the fact that the first month's already in the books here in 2024. I'm a bit of two minds on that one, though. Okay, what's that? Like, yes, January did seem to fly by yeah. at times, and at other times, it felt like the longest month ever. Yeah, I, you know, I saw some of the crazy social media memes. Uh, sure am glad the 80 days of January are over. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It did seem long. I think the weather contributed to that feeling oh yeah the real crazy cold snap we had there in the middle of the month and then uh, but you know that was kind of flanked on either side by rather mild weather you remember the the i believe it was january 1st the sunday the 31st and first we're pretty neat oh but yeah here we are in uh in week two of month two i used to full first full week of uh, February. It is going on. I went down to the Capitol yesterday, 4 o'clock, is when the House gaveled in. Didn't take very long. Not much going on. Some announcements for meetings that ensued after that, and then some more (laughs) throughout the week. Not a, a lot of legislation just yet. You know about the mobile sports betting bill, the measure, which passed the House last week, headed, well, it's actually been transmitted into the Senate, but I've not heard anything since then about it. We got some bad news to share. You probably already know. Sad, I guess, news is a way to put it. Toby Keith, 62 years old, passed away after a battle with stomach cancer for a year. Really sad. Way too young. He is, of course, a singer-songwriter. Should have been a cowboy, I think many believe was his biggest hit, that from 1993. Certainly put him on the map, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Although his look at that time in his career shifted dramatically into his later career. Yeah. Because in 93, 
it was still the era of the the class of 89 where you had just a a glut of new country talent that crossed over and you had all this a uh, hype surrounding country music in the mainstream late 80s early 90s toby keith came in kind of towards the end of that big rush of 93 with long golden locks and a bedazzled <laughs> shirt and a far cry from the the dirt bag straw hat and the rugged jeans and the closer to a cowboy look which is the irony of it because his first big hit was should have been a cowboy and he started looking more and more like a cowboy the more he got into his career yeah his wife trisha 39 years married in 1984 so you know anytime you see a marriage endure for such a long period of time where the the couple at least one of the couple is a celebrity uh, honestly my level of respect goes up for them it just seems like they're more prone to have some sort of marital problem of course being in the limelight constantly the way they are in the public it's it's difficult i i just i mean there's an entire industry devoted to gossip about celebrities yeah which is kind of sad and 90 percent of it's just made up to sell or to get clicks but it has been known to split couples oh yeah well i mean you have that plus the the busy schedule because it's not like a nine to five job where you can true you can chunk off time in your day for hey this is time to sit down and we can have a meal as a family no if you're on the road 300 days out of the year it's a little bit more difficult to really get quality time with the family. A good point, and uh, which is critical to making a marriage last and having a thriving, stable family. But anytime I see a couple that has remained together for such a long period of time, again, I I, um, I tip my hat, no pun intended there, to uh, to the couple for just making it work. You know, it's I just think it's harder. It's uh, the stress is more difficult, and just being in the in the public eye constantly, you can't escape it. You know that. They're, they're press and media and fans and detractors. You you know the uh, it really transcends a wide variety of just people out in society that want to track your every move and expose it. Honestly, and we all have tools to do that these days. So. If you can survive all that and make it work, man, that's uh, that's pretty good. And he certainly did, he and his wife. So up there in Washington, man, they're working on this border bill in the Senate. We, uh, we brought it to you last week, Senator James Lankford, Republican from Oklahoma, the principal sponsor. It don't look real good for this measure passing the Senate. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has already announced it is a dead on arrival over here in the House. Don't even waste your time. Now, yesterday, a number of Republicans in the Senate announced their opposition to the measure. 
uh, a number of other Republicans were not yet on record as saying which way they were going, among those being Mississippi Senators Roger Wicker and Cindy Hyde-Smith. Now, what is interesting, Rhino, you've probably seen this, is that Minority Leader Mitch McConnell initially indicated his support for the, the measure, and then in the last 24 hours or so, he's kind of flipped and said, sort of, do what you want, be careful here, and and uh, seems to be leaning more towards opposing it. And, of course, 60 votes required, 41 vote against it. It's done deal. It's over, torpedoed. And it looks like there may be a procedural vote tomorrow. Is kind of what it's looking like at this point. And I, I would uh, anticipate at this point it's going to fail on the procedural vote. So there may be some further debate, amendments. Maybe they're going to try to get something done. But here's what's crazy that I think most people know. Joe Biden could fix this problem today. All he have to do all he has to do is reinstate the Trump-era policies that he rescinded, that he reversed on day one. He couldn't wait to get that pen on the paper in the Oval Office. Again, I ask, how is it possible to have the power to undo something, yet you claim that you can't redo it? I think that's the question many are asking, which is a rational, logical question. Sure, you could do that today. And the fact that you're not indicates you're really not interested in shutting down the border and stemming the surge. I really found it fascinating that the Border Patrol Union, the union president, supports the measure. National Border Patrol Council has indicated. I've seen some pushback on that, though. Well, the... From membership. Brandon Judd, yeah, I agree. Membership has, but the but the council president, Brandon Judd, I saw. An, I, I'm reading a report on it right now. Saw an interview with him this morning, early this morning, and he said this is better than nothing. Essentially, I mean that's kind of where we are. I guess you know that he felt like this would improve the situation, and that doing nothing simply means that the status quo remains. That Joe Biden is not going to take any action. He's not likely to enforce the laws, which are already on the books. And that's why I think the Democrats in this case are negotiating in bad faith. Yeah. They already have the authority to do something about it. They just want a scapegoat. All right. Sounds not like doing something about it. Right. Let's blame the Republicans. It's their fault. They won't pass this bill and give us money and all that sort of stuff. But... You know, the, the Speaker of the House, I give it to him, Mike Johnson, he's pointed specifically to, I think it's a Clinton-era era law, if I'm not mistaken, 212F, which empowers the president fairly broadly to take action to secure the border. And he points to sections therein which confer such power. This president's just not using that power. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio at 12.05. It's Dr. Al Rankins, the commissioner of IHL. Hi. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. What? What? This is so awesome. 
on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studio. It is middays. Once again, Dr. Al Rankins, the commissioner of the Mississippi Institutions of Higher Learning, is on the program at 12.05 today. So just uh, looking at some of the comments here, Rhino, from many senators about this so-called border bill, if you could call it that. <laughs> um, Senator Roger Wicker, Mississippi senator, predicted that tomorrow's procedural vote would fall short of the 60 necessary to pass the measure in the upper chamber. And this was after exiting a meeting with other GOP leaders. His exact quote to reporters after that meeting, again, I'm quoting Senator Wicker, I think the proposal is dead, is what he said. So, yeah, McConnell, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, he, he did, um, I guess, have a bit of a an about-face. He initially recommended in a closed-door meeting that they support Senator Lankford's measure, but then in this subsequent closed-door meeting, which I believe was held yesterday, he said that they should vote against the procedural vote tomorrow. And that simply means that they'll... They can continue to deliberate, offer amendments, debate, etc., and just craft a new measure somewhat, or certainly an amended one. Now, this was just a few hours between him stating, I'm talking about Minority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, he said, quote, it's now time for Congress to take action. And then a few hours later, he emerged from this closed-door meeting and said, I think we ought to defeat the procedural vote scheduled for tomorrow. So something happened there in between, and that's fine. But at this point, it looks like that's where we are again. We, we Maybe have, they did some digging and read the bill and saw that it was crap. 370 pages, by the way, which sounds to me insane on the surface as to why does it take so many words to just shut the dang border down. That that does kind of make you scratch your head at a minimum. But again, we, we've got laws in place right now, and that is what Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is highlighting. we got laws right now that empower the President of the United States to shut down the border. And again, he even cited specific sections of laws in his social media posts. Here, Mr. President, here are the laws that you can enforce right now. So if they're not going to enforce the current laws that are already on the books, why would you think they would enforce the law that they passed? Well, that's good. That's a good point. The only reason I think they would is because, as you know, this law falls far short of the laws on the books with with respect to securing the border. Plus, it includes the money they want for Ukraine. And And even the language talking about shutting down the border is fishy at best. 
It, have you because seen that? Because it's worded to it, everybody keeps talking about the number, the number five thousand, the number five thousand. And if there's a a certain amount over a certain number of days, that number will be lowered to thirty seven hundred and fifty. Except all they're talking about are illegal immigrants from non contiguous countries. Very much true. Um, that does nothing whatsoever to stop Mexicans or uh, Canadians from illegally entering the country. It again, it's not uh, that Canadians tend to have much of a problem with that, but it, it it let's be honest, this doesn't shut the border down. No, and that that's what the how they're advertising it, which is what I was I've said it before. I'll say it again. Not fully shutting it down is the compromise. One party wants a complete shutdown. One party wants it wide open. Yep. So the compromise is not completely shutting it down, but putting in a stopgap. There shouldn't be any other compromise about, oh, well, we got to have money for this. You got to have money for that. You got to do this. No, the compromise is, all right, y'all want to leave it open. We want to shut it down. Neither of us are going to be happy because it's not getting shut down, but it ain't wide open anymore. And just so you know, folks, I, I read you the language here, which is just kind of hairy unto itself, it states the secretary may, may activate the border emergency authority if during a period of seven consecutive calendar days there is an average of 4,000 or more aliens who encountered each day, who are encountered each day, this may. So in other words, if we hit the 4,000 crossing mark on average over seven days, the authorities have, at their discretion, the power to shut the border. Does it mandate that they do? There is another provision that does mandate they shut it down, and this states, this provision, the secretary shall activate the border emergency authority if during a period of seven consecutive calendar days there is an average of 5,000 or more aliens who are encountered each day, or if on any single calendar day, a combined total of 8,500 or more aliens are encountered. So 4,000, they may not require to shut it down, average over seven days. 5,000 average, they are required, mandated to shut it down, or 8,500 in a day. But then there's a trigger that reopens it once, once the numbers uh, get back to 75%, I think is what it is, and they can reopen it. And so what their thoughts, however, are these are just good people seeking asylum. That That's kind of what underlies all this that's just so wrong, in my view. Yeah, these are just it's good people. It's statistically impossible. Exactly, that that are seeking asylum. And, and it's got some other provisions that would – that would speed up the it's asylum. It's like saying everybody at a sold-out Yankee stadium is left-handed. It's just statistically impossible. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, but there, like I said, there are some other provisions that are designed to kind of improve the speed of processing of those crossing the border. Um, it It's really... It expands expedited removals, detention. It limits... Immigration parole, uh, raising asylum interview standards. I mean, so there are some things that I guess are reasonably positive on that. But it, but you also notice in all that phrasing, they use the word encounters. 
Yeah, which means it t- does not take into account those that just cross areas that they're never um, the gotaways. And doesn't say. take into account history of the federal government pulling the Border Patrol a mile away from the border. That's true. At that point, who are you encountering? How do you get to 5,000? That's very true. So um, a, a bunch of smoke and mirrors, honestly, that I don't think really at the end of the day would achieve a lot. The question is, how do we get the president to just exercise his power to shut the border down? Because there doesn't seem to be any interest in doing that. We can't seem to get any legislation that would receive the required votes in the Senate. Got to have 60. So you can get all 50 Republicans on board. You don't get the other another 10 Democrats, 49 Republicans, actually. You got to have 11 uh, Democrats to cross that threshold. I don't see that happening. You might get something in the House, but it's DOA in the Senate. So, I mean, this is the price you pay for having this divided government, which is just status quo, inaction, nothing. And the, and Biden, would he would veto anything that even appears, smells like it's actually going to totally shut the border down. Because if he believed in that and supported that, he could do it today with the stroke of a pen. But it's clear that he has no interest in doing so. So that's that's just disturbing that we have a president that uh, just doesn't care about the flow of illegals across the border that are infiltrating society. I've received reports, by the way, from friends about some public schools. I'm curious about this from our audience that are seeing an influx in Mississippi clearly of migrants because they're students that cannot speak English, and they're in middle school. So that's pretty clear that they immigrated into the country, and I guess they're dispersing out. Some are landing in Mississippi. As the saying goes, we're all a border state. So I'm not surprised at that, but it's the first I've actually heard someone who attended a board meeting in a school district where they heard this, folks talking about it. So I'm assuming if it's happening in one district, by the way, that's in central Mississippi, that it's happening elsewhere across the Magnolia State. If not, you got to believe it's a matter of time, given the numbers that are crossing over on a daily basis and then, and then, then are just fanning out. It's upside down, no doubt about it. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio and coming back. You ain't nothing but a hat on dog crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a hat on dog crying all the time. Well, you ain't never caught a rabbit. You ain't no friend of mine. Attention, adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
Mike Thomas. I had the 45 when I was a kid. Is that one? From the 60s, I think, isn't it? 68. There you go. A tumultuous year in American history was 1968. So I... Fail to mention uh, or, or provide more detail, I should say, color on the 75% figure. I couldn't remember exactly what that means. So I, I did some research on the break. If Homeland Security, if they use their authority, either discretionary, on a discretionary basis, or based on the mandate in the border bill, Trade would continue. People who were citizens and legal residents could still cross back and forth on the borders, and migrants could still apply at the legal ports of entry, which is, I think, what people want. You want to enter this country? Do so through the legal process. I don't know anybody that objects to that. Now, that doesn't mean you're guaranteed entry, but you start there and you follow the process. I think reasonable people, unfortunately, there are a whole bunch of unreasonable people that honestly seek permanent power from this invasion. That's what they want. Let's be honest about it. So what it says, the legislation, is that once the average of legal, illegal, illegal crossings drops by 75%, then the administration has two weeks to end that use of emergency authority to close the border. This just seems like a lot of math you got to do. Now, I know I've seen Senator Lankford from Oklahoma, who, who honestly is a pretty good conservative senator. And maybe he's just trying to get something done here, because nothing's happening right now. It's just wide open. But I've seen him say... Rhino, it's not like we're going to be there with a clicker counting the number crossing. But it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Like, how else do you do it? Because you got the legal entry and the illegal entry. And this is all, all pertains to illegal. So we're still saying, yeah, 5,000 can cross over illegally. But once we hit that average over a seven day period, okay, we're shutting the border down. And when it gets. Reduced by 75%. We're opening it back up. This isn't shutting the border down. I mean, I guess you could say, yeah, this is better than what we have now, which on some days we learned last month, 10,000 a day. Over 330,000 in the month, actually in December, not January. Nonetheless, it probably will approach that in January because it doesn't appear anything has materially changed at the border. All the images, the video you see, it's just a mass of people coming across. The one you shared with me last week with a member of the cartel dressed with a bandana or something over their face, only their eyes showing that were releasing their human cargo those whom they escorted into the country through what appeared to be holes in the so-called wall, right? It was just looked like metal studs there. Some of it covered up, but a hole between them. And you can easily, a human can pass between the studs. And you postulated that that video was for the purpose of payment. Here, I, I did my duty. 
I fulfilled my agreement, my contract, whatever the I mean, arrangement why else is. Why would you be taking pictures of the people you just deposited across the border? I, I agree. I th- I think you're spot on with it, honestly, and and that's it, it. That's probably a requirement to receive payment. After you suggested that, is is that being the likely reason? I got to tell you, I thought about something my father told me, who served in World War II. In the Navy, was a helmsman. Actually, in the Coast Guard, he was a helmsman, and uh, he he piloted heavy cruisers and destroyers. And they would often, of course, dock outside of the islands as the American forces were sort of tiptoeing across the Pacific. There, that that was the orders, and and they would take out responsible for taking over the island that they were invading and and taking out the Japanese that were hunkered down. Japanese soldiers, of course. And my father said that the Marines that, of course, accompanied the sailors figured that they could pay the natives, literally pay the natives, who knew where these Japanese were hiding out in in a, um, a very guerrilla type fashion, right? Usually beyond the beachheads, in the in the woods, in the trees, in the brush, waiting to pick off Americans as they came ashore. And he said that they'd figured out that they could kind of stop there and sort of dig foxholes, maybe, or, or just just. Uh, um, position themselves on the edge, and the natives would come forward, and they'd pay them to go out and assassinate the Japanese soldiers, many of whom were just camped out in the woods, up in the trees, and very well camouflaged. So to receive payment, they'd have to bring back an ear. You're shaking your head. You may have heard this, right? Oh, yeah. And so my dad, in his collection of photos that I now have at my house, he, he took one of one of the natives who's like squatting down, kind of on one knee, and he's got a rope, and it's got a bunch of ears on it, and he's smiling. Incredible. That's true, right? Yes. It was either ears or the head. He's got another one that's got a head, clearly, of a Japanese soldier, all bloodied up. I mean, it's gruesome. That's how they got paid. He's smiling, holding the head. They found that to be more effective than the Marines themselves, trying to flush them out because they're pretty good. They knew the landscape. It's brand new to the Marines. I mean, that that is not – it's it's nowhere near as barbaric nowadays. But why do you think there were tables 8, 10, 12 inches high – completely covered in cash that were left in Afghanistan. What was that cash for? The same thing. Okay. Makes sense. Payment of bounties. Makes sense. That's exactly what it was, just a bounty. But obviously, the natives who inhabited those islands knew those small islands backwards and forwards and were able to, I guess, sneak up upon the Japanese who were uh, positioned in the trees or just disguising themselves 
elsewhere. Well, the, the reason the Japanese soldiers were so well hidden is they had weeks and months of preparation time. Yeah. And they had spent those weeks and months around, sometimes even subjugating the locals while building their encampments, while setting up their ambushes. So the locals knew where they were. They weren't messing with the locals much. And when they did, those tended to be the locals that took joy in assisting the Marines. But, yeah. Well, my dad said that uh, uh, ultimately, uh, after they kind of got wise to that, they started camping out in foxholes that were very well camouflaged on the beachheads. And when they would release the Marines on the LCIs sometimes or just on other small craft that they would use to come off the cruisers or destroyers or what have you, that they'd be in those disguised and underground in those foxholes under some sort of brush. You couldn't tell. So he said that the Marines would send out the flamethrowers and just would sort of indiscriminately just blowing those flames all over the beachhead at anything. And they knew that they had obviously struck one that had a person in it, a Japanese soldier, because they come flying out of that foxhole, try to get out of the fire. And my dad said the Marines would hit him. I mean, my dad witnessed this when he was, you know, 19, 20 years old. My dad said they'd hit him with that flamethrower, and it would just burn him like a crisp, as he, as he described it, like a piece of bacon just frozen right there. Just immediately engulf them in flames. That's what you had to do. It's either that or you get killed. Because they were just sitting there waiting for you. Sitting ducks coming in. <laughs> They're underground on the beachhead. And the other, thing, the other thing to keep in mind if you were manning the flamethrower is you had that big tank of flammable liquid on your back that was a big target. And that's what my dad said. It got to where the flamethrowers, that, that's who they were all trying to, to take out. Because they knew. That, uh, that And so the, the ones beyond the beach that were in the trees, they, the snipers, they were trying to take out the flamethrowers. But the flamethrowers were guarded, of course, by Americans. They were just spraying machine gun bullets in the trees. <laughs> What's the saying? War, war never changes? Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. Just digressing a bit, but that kind of made me think about that. We're going to take a break right here on Middays. We're in the Element Well studio with Dr. Al Rankins joining us at 12.05. Stay with us. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back. On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Don't forget, 601-879-4395. That is the C Spire text line. The Dow presently up 47. It's been hopping around that unchanged line like a kangaroo, as Rhino says. 
The uh, the Nasdaq it too has been a bit volatile. It presently is down fifty two points as well. Uh, so we got the we got a mixed report. The Dow up, the Nasdaq down. Ten year Treasury yields down a little bit. The funny money, as Rhino says, up seven hundred forty three bucks today, trading at forty three thousand is a Bitcoin. The S and P also down. There's just a flurry of reports, uh, Rhino, of, of um, in major investments being made by uh, uh, companies that uh, companies really that uh, transcend the range of industries in this country. Not just big tech and high tech, but there's really not a company out there that doesn't have some sort of concerted effort to incorporate artificial intelligence in its operations. And as a result, NVIDIA, they're the folks that make the chips that are customized to not only develop AI algorithms and software, but to to operate, to process uh, the software created using the chips. And so demand is expected to surge. Uh, The other company that assists in creating databases and just just large uh, data lakes, data warehouses and just collections of information, if you will, used to train machines in machine learning or or AI algorithms, that being Palantir. I heard a report from them this morning says we cannot keep up with the demand. Cannot keep up with the demand. That's incredible. What kind of – what business wouldn't like to have that problem? Called it relentless, the CEO did. Unbelievable. That's pretty cool. So NVIDIA, though, it's uh, I think we mentioned this yesterday. It's down a little bit today. Last time I checked uh, is the, the stock price of NVIDIA. But let's take a look, see where it is, just to make sure. Yeah, it's I... down 3%. Okay. So Which it's... when you're trading at close to $700, that's down 20 bucks today. Yeah. 700 bucks. Wasn't too long ago, like last week, I think it was 650 something in that range. So, again, analysts, some are putting a $900 target on it this year. It's currently trading at 672 and it was trading at 522 start of the year. Okay. Start of the year. So it's up 150 bucks a share in a little a little over 30 days. It was trading for as little as 400 a share in October. In other words, you could have had a big pop if you had the stomach and the uh, certainly the capital to make an investment. Here's the thing. Who's got the stomach to buy a $700 stock <laughs> anticipating it's going to 900 I, wow. just, I went back, and I've got the five-year now pulled up, and somewhere out there in the world. Yeah is somebody that bought NVIDIA at $65 a share back in April 2020. 2020? With some of that helicopter money. Unbelievable. Now, whether or not they held on to it till today is another story, but I'm sure that happened at least once. Unbelievable. That's incredible. Palantir, by the way, trading at 20 bucks, up 24% today on this guidance. They released fourth quarter results. Uh, a few hours ago, 
And so what it says is that investors have not yet had enough of this AI explosion. Neither has America in the world, honestly. So it looks like it's headed for its best day ever. Shares are up, again, 20%. Very, very positive uh, guidance from the CEO, the CFO, and, of course, they beat revenue. And it just indicates the strong demand for AI. Ain't going away. Incredible. I'm not trying to rain on the parade, but I I am a little bit. This does just, it feels like the dot-com bubble 2.0. It it does. I I hear you. I think this is this is a little different in that we um, really didn't have as strong a feeling about what was going to be viable, I guess, in the dot com bubble. Clearly, there's going to be some some uh, false starts, just like oh, there yeah. were in dot com with AI, no doubt about it. The, 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 so is it going to explode and create a bunch of wealth? Absolutely. Question is. How do you pick out those nuggets? Is Palantir one of them? They got a pretty strong lead in what they do. Ain't no doubt about it. Well, it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News because it's top of the hour. Two hours remaining in the program. Please stay with us. We're coming right back. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. You're tuned in to Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. Middays is going to be at the Mississippi Trademark on Thursday as the Dixie National Rodeo rolls along. It's brought to you by Farm Bureau and Ag Up Equipment's Sale of Champions. Looking forward to being down at the Trademark this Thursday. And then I'm headed up to Mississippi State University on Thursday to speak to the MSU College Republicans. Looking forward to that. Always appreciate and uh, look forward to the opportunity to uh, interact with young folks and maybe give them a point of view that sometimes they're not hearing, as you know. So uh, balance is so important and diverse thoughts and opinions uh, within the the enclaves of young folks in this country from, in my view, from school, middle school at least, all the way up through their college experience as well. They need to be exposed to multiple diverse points of view and then make their own mind up. Learn to think critically, as we see, say. So I'm watching the tube here in the studio, and it is Chuck Schumer. Majority leader in the United States Senate, and he is discussing the border package, as Congress now is certainly on the Senate side debating. And I just saw an announcement where President Joe Biden is scheduled to offer some comments on the measure that doesn't look like it's going to pass in the U.S. Senate. 
at this point. And, of course, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, now they flipped over to him live, and he's talking about the package as well. And I can't hear him, but I don't think he's changed his position, which has been steadfastly. It's DOA over here in the House. I just don't get why. Why am I saying that? No, I do understand. I do get why Joe Biden will not exercise his power and authority to shut the border down. Doesn't want to, fundamentally. Has he been there yet, by the way? I don't think so. Have he or Kamala visited in person? Seems like she was... Somewhat close, but not actually right there on the border where you could film them, capture on video them at the border with migrants illegally crossing over. That's the last thing they want, is any such record, video record. Because it's easy to sit up at the Capitol, Washington, with Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and just say, no, it's secure. All is well. Of course, now we've got articles of impeachment which have been drawn up against the secretary and have passed out of committee. We await the disposition of those articles in the U.S. House, obviously not going anywhere in the Senate, which would be required to remove the secretary from his cabinet post. Don't see that happening. Uh, Really, this whole package, though, it might make asylum tougher because they, they are increasing the standards. That is one of the provisions of the legislation. But it would also, uh, the process would also be faster. That's, that was part of the, the um, objectives. Also would increase the green cards by $50,000 a year, issue work permits for adult children of H-1B holders, immediate work permits for every illegal alien released from custody. That's incredible. So one of the problems now is that we have this giant mass of people coming across, And they can't work because they can't get permits to work. And so we just spend money to house them and feed them and clothe them and provide them medical care and cash and everything else. Did you say a green card's going up to 50,000? I'm looking at the bullet points, yeah, from a news source uh, summarizing the legislation. That's what it says, 50,000 a year. That's what what it says. Does that sound wrong? Currently for an applicant Uh, uh, applying. Pardon me, pardon me. Increase it by fifty thousand a year. Increase by fifty thousand a year. Yeah, I'm just trying to point out how crazy that number is. If you're trying to actually have legal immigration, okay. Because the current government filing fee for a family-based green card, if you're applying from within the United States, is one thousand seven hundred and sixty dollars. If you're doing it the proper way and applying from outside the United States, it is twelve hundred dollars. Wow. Okay. So to jump up to $50,000. No, no, no. The number 50,000. The oh. number of green cards issued, my apologies, increased by 50,000 a year. I don't know what the number of green cards being issued now are on average. But 
What I'm looking at says increase by 50,000. So add that to the current number being issued. Not sure how many are being issued on average right now on an annual basis. As of 2022, which is the latest data, okay, just over 1 million green card applications. Wow. So we're, we're essentially increasing that to a million fifty, essentially. We don't know what it was in 23. I expect it's in that ballpark. So that's what this legislation would do. That is a feature, a provision of this border package that uh, is over there in the Senate, authored in the Senate. Immediate work permits for every illegal alien released from custody. (laughs) That just seems weird. So you're here illegally. You're incarcerated because of that. We're going to let you out and give you a work permit so you can get employment in the country. Man. And then, of course, the expulsion authority granted that we talked about earlier based on those those thresholds, those triggers. That's another provision, another feature of the legislation. Restrict parole for those who enter without authorization between ports of entry. Restrict parole. What does that mean exactly? So does that mean you've you've crossed over it in some area of the border other than the legal ports of entry? We've arrested you? Taking you, apprehended you, taking you into custody, and then, and then we're allowing you, we're releasing you with some sort of parole, and we're restricting. I don't know exactly what that means. That's I'm, I'm speculating at this well, point. Parole, when it comes to immigration, is the authority of the government to grant a foreign entity entry into the U.S. when that person can't get a visa or can't qualify for one. Okay, gotcha. So, in other words, nothing. <laughs> what they mean? Come on in, right? That's that's just the bottom line. Now, the Wall Street Journal, surprisingly, the editorial board, they came out yesterday, late yesterday, in support of the measure. They said this is the most restrictive measure with respect to control of the border. In decades is the way they described it. And I think the conclusion there, their viewpoint comes from it's either this or we keep going the way we are now, which is wide open Joe Biden borders. Now, I think a lot of folks, I included, would like to see something far more restrictive. Just simply reinstating The policies, yeah, I'm reading it. By any honest reckoning, this is the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades. That, a quote, lifted from the Wall Street Journal's uh, op-ed penned by the WSJ editorial board late yesterday. Most restrictive in decades. Well, I guess you could say from a, just purely from a, a legislative perspective, that may be true. However, we've got a law that was passed. I can't remember the official name of it. It's kind of one of these acronyms. You remember, I know it's got a bunch of words in it. But Clinton-era legislation, as I recall, concerning immigration. That's back when Democrats also thought it was a bad idea to have wide-open borders. 
And this was passed, and it, it granted lots of power to the president, to the commander-in-chief, to control and secure and shut the border down. And this is what Mike Johnson, I think it's Section 212F or something to that effect, this is what Mike Johnson is pointing to, saying, you got, you got the power now, Mr. President, to shut the thing down, just as Donald Trump invoked such power, relying on that law. And then Joe Biden just rescinds all that the day he took office. And that's where we are now. Seems simple. Just reinstate all that. Done deal. We don't need a 370-page law. Coming right back. Stay with us. This is Jerry Lake. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. Kent and Brandon on the ceasefire text line says, I was talking in the last hour, sharing stories that my father, who served in World War II, shared concerning his experience in the Pacific Theater. He was a helmsman in the Navy and just talking about the Japanese snipers that would be hunkered down in the trees beyond the beachheads of the islands as the Americans were really making their way towards the Japanese mainland. That's what they were doing, using the islands in the Pacific as kind of a stepping stone. And all of those islands uh, also included a number of Japanese soldiers that were there to um, fend off the Americans who were again, steaming towards the mainland of Japan and using uh, encountering snipers and even those in foxholes that were well-disguised that would pop up and spray Marines with bullets as they were coming on shore. Use of flamethrowers by the Marines to flesh out the, the snipers below ground in the foxholes that were so well camouflaged. Kent says, war description you gave is exactly how my uncle described it. They were in caves, tunnels, and holes and would not come out. If we had not used the bomb, talking about the nuclear bomb drop on Japan, it would have cost us 500,000 soldiers to flush them out in three more years of fighting. And that's exactly what uh, was at stake. I mean, those were the options deliberated uh, by the U.S. at that time. I mean, that's really what it came down to. And the decision was made to release the atomic bomb. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, that's exactly right. So back to this uh, immigration law on the books. 1952. 1952. The Immigration and Nationality Act Section 212F, which I cited in the last segment, authorizes the president, quote, 
to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens whose entry the president finds would be detrimental to the interest of the United States since 1952. Now, there have been some other measures passed that somewhat reformed the provisions of that original law going back to 1952. And one of those, as I suggested earlier, was uh, during the Clinton administration. 1996. 1996. There was a law which passed and that that kind of followed up on that. So you get this, the folks at Vox, if you're familiar with them, a media outlet, pretty much lean to the left, almost uh, without fault. And they blast the 96 bill. They said that it uh, allows too many people to be deported. <laughs> They're not happy about that. Incredible. It's easier to deport people, says the folks there at Vox. And it's harder for legal immigrants to become citizens. That's what they say. They call it a, a, uh, a disaster. Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act was the name of that legislation passed in 1996. But they're mad about it because they say it, essentially it makes it too hard for illegal people to come into the country and start enjoying (laughs) the bounty of America. That's really what they're saying. Incredible is what they're mad about. This, by the way, is something I found from 2016. That's long before it got way out of control the way it is today. Incredible. And then in 1986, signed by President Ronald Reagan, there was what is often referred to as an amnesty law. I don't know that I would call it that necessarily. But uh, the Clinton administration... At least in those days, Democrat President Bill Clinton felt like we needed to have secure borders. And I think most Democrats, clearly, we wouldn't have got this bill passed if that wasn't the case, felt totally different. And you can find examples today, Rhino, of members sitting in Congress that have been there a long time, going back to that period, that even back then said that this was a problem and that we had to secure the border. One of Barack Obama's chief advisors said a thousand a day is a problem. He's being cited a lot, understandably so, by Republicans, even someone from their own party, from whom many Democrats hold up as the greatest Democrat, if not the greatest president of all time. One of his chief advisors concerning immigration in the border said, yeah, a thousand a day is a problem. It's 10,000 now. A short six, seven years later, eight years later. It's incredible. So just shows you how, I guess, they've evolved. And I think it's because they figured out, yeah, if we just let all these people in, 
we'll seize permanent power. That's what they're thinking. No doubt about it. So that's a little bit about the history of that. Going back to 1952, some degree of reform under President Reagan in 86, and then fairly significant reform under 96, in 96 under Clinton, but it, it actually tightened up border security. And the, the article from Vox, the disastrous forgotten 1996 law that created today's immigration problem, they're just all aggrieved about the fact that it makes it easy, easier to deport illegals and harder to achieve legal status in the country. Unbelievable. Well, you should also know, pivoting a bit here, I'm talking about this a lot because the polls show that this is the number one issue to most voters. They're now more focused on this than they are the economy. I think that could be because, even though they're unhappy about their economic situation, we... we, um, Discussed that quite a bit extensively yesterday. Uh, they're, they're starting to see in many areas inflation moderate a bit. They're starting to see some increase in wages that, at least in the last year, have outpaced the increase of prices. Not for everybody, not for everything, but just when you look at overall averages, that's absolutely true. But Eyes do not deceive. And when you see all this video, all these images, all these examples, and then, of course, this weekend in New York, right, four thugs, illegal, illegals in the country, brutally attack a police officer, are released without bail from the woke DA up there, and then they go hang out in a shelter paid for by American tax dollars, and then they travel to California, and they're supposed to be like in court, right, this week or next week or something like that. Unbelievable. And now folks on the left, Democrats, are learning, I guess through the grapevine, that the illegals go to areas like New York because they know they can commit crime with impunity, and they stay out of Florida and Texas when they know they're going to get punished. Duh! How hard is that to figure out? And of course, not only do we release them, but as they're traveling with the media around them, walking out of court there, they're flipping the bird to America. Now these are thugs in their 20s. Then they're headed again to a taxpayer-funded shelter, and then getting on taxpayer-funded transportation to go across, travel across the country. That's how upside down and broke this whole deal is. We don't hear anything that I can find from this administration about this incident. Have you seen or heard anything? Nothing that I know of. It, um, it's totally broke. That's all you can say. So I respect the Rep- Republicans, apparently in, on both sides now of the Capitol, for holding the line. But the reality is Joe Biden's not going to change his policy positions. I don't see it. And it's just going to continue. I guess we just have to wait another nine months till we get a new, I guess ten months at this point, till we get a new president and a new administration. 
so we can get something done. We hope that it's the president that shuts the border down. Joe Biden's never going to do it, in my view. Little Beach Boys bumping us out of this segment here on Middays. we got to update you on uh, Donald Trump's legal situation, one of them at least. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio. Keep up with everything happening in the presidential primaries by going to supertalk.fm slash elections. You'll get a full breakdown of state-by-state results, delegate counts, and more. Supertalk.fm slash elections. Argo in Blue Springs says, so we give everybody that doesn't belong here everything that we can't get because we live here. It does seem perverted, no doubt about it. Uh, You know, uh, reading this article penned by the Wall Street Journal editorial board that called this the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades, I think we have to be realistic uh, about it for sure, and it and it it makes it makes sense to me. Uh, someone said it earlier that uh, the only thing that's really acceptable is zero illegals crossing over. Uh, I I agree. I mean, I I fully support legal immigration. I oppose illegal, and I think everybody that enters the country illegally should be sent back, detained, deported. That's really what Bill Clinton intended to do, honestly, with the measure we we shared with you earlier that was passed while he was president in 1996 and, of course, supported by Democrats in Congress as well as Republicans. But what's likely to happen, as far as I can see, is nothing, that it just continues, the status quo, just as it is now. So I think the question is, can you get something better? Should... Republicans hold out, continue to to debate with uh, debate Democrats on some sort of border legislation. Should they do that? Um, get something better than this, which is sprung up from the Senate. That is a, a bipartisan measure, if you will, with um, sponsored by Senator Lankford for Oklahoma from Oklahoma on the Republican side. Or should they accept this? And at least make some improvement, assuming it would. I mean, assuming that that what's included in in this law would be, in fact, carried out and properly administered administered by the president, because this has to come from him. It it does trigger agencies under his purview to act when certain thresholds are achieved, as we shared with you earlier. Should they accept that? It's, hey, this is just something better than nothing to hold on for 10 months, because otherwise the likely result, again, is no change. Just continues at this ridiculous eight, ten thousand 10,000 a day crossing over and then just dispersing throughout the country. That kind of looks like where we're headed at this point. 
And that's, again, just a function of not having control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. Just limited on what you can do. And I know people get frustrated with that. I've seen people that have, have jumped on um, our delegation. Hey, why aren't you doing something about this right now? I'm with them, except they're kind of limited. You might be able to get something passed. We already have, in fact, a bill that passed the House. We already have it, H.R. 2. It's a fantastic measure that would get control of the border and stop the stem, uh, or uh, should say stem the flow of the illegals across the border. We have that, H.R. 2, but it's got no chance in the Senate. No chance. It, it, they would have already passed it, because it was passed some time ago by the Republican-controlled House. It's a, Again, it's a great bill to address the chaos at the border. It really crisis now. But uh, Democrats have no interest <laughs> in securing the border. Well, well then you have to prove that. And you do that by the House adopting the language of the Senate's bill but stripping out any funding for Ukraine and Israel. Make it a single-issue bill. You could do that. But it's but it's still, as you know, it, it allows crossings. Correct. It doesn't shut the border down. It just allows them up to a point and says, okay, now you got to shut it down. Once you get to the 5000 a day, average over seven days, hey, Homeland Security, you got to shut the border down. But then the ball is back in the Democrats' court. I agree. Because I doubt they would vote for it. So here's the question. Because it would give the Republicans a win. I agree. So we have H.R. 2, again, that I, that I mentioned earlier, already passed the House. A very strong border security bill. No chance in the Senate. Uh, won't even put it on the floor for a vote. Can't get it out of committee. You know, can't get it to a point where you can see where everybody stands with their vote. But maybe that's the approach they should take. Take this bill, strip out all the extraneous language is not related to the border and border security, and see what happens. Now you've seen change a couple shalls to wills. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you've seen some. Maybe how about lower the thresholds? Something else you could do. Um, maybe from five thousand is twenty five hundred. I don't know. Something that you could uh, you could get Democrats on board with. But many of the progressive Democrats, they're all mad because they say this really isn't is an immigration reform. Because what they seek is just to make it easy peasy for anybody to cross over anywhere along the border and just like immediately be granted citizenship. That's what they want. That's their idea. And a whole bunch of money to take care of them. So you got all these these Democrat mayors and state level officials that are all belly aching about how all the immigrants are overwhelming their cities, their towns, their states. They're not asking for the border to be shut down to cure that problem. They want more money from taxpayers to take care of all these people because they know they're going to be voters for them. That's why. Man, it's so, it, it's just so twisted on the ceasefire text line. So we are going to give the secretary the authority to shut it down. The secretary that says the border is secured and lies to the House. Yeah, it actually doesn't even give them authority. It's, it, 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 there's a discretionary component, and then there's a mandatory component. The mandatory says you will shut the border down. As Rhino said, 
just just get rid of the discretionary feature. Just make it mandatory. Once we hit a certain level, you shouldn't even have to do that. I agree. I'm not saying I support this as a permanent solution. I'm just trying to get something done maybe today to hang on for 10 or 11 months in the hopes that we get different folks in office that truly can shut the border down the way it should be. Uh, if we could get a stopgap solution that they could get on board with, I just don't see there being any way to get the necessary agreement to pass anything at this point. I, I just don't see it. And and you're right. It is an election year, and we cannot understate how much that factors into this because both sides are looking to blame the other for something related to this. It's the whole reason you had Democrats adding on extra extraneous crap on top of the compromise. I agree. Because then the Republicans won't vote for it, so the Democrats have an excuse to say, well, it's not our fault. The border's not our problem. Blame the Republicans. Yeah, I agree. On the ceasefire text line, DW and Madison says how to, how to bring about a, cha- a charge of treason against, I think he said means Mayorkas versus impeachment. Um, I don't know exactly what the bar is there to uh, to actually make such a charge. I'm not sure. I, I honestly, you know, this is going nowhere. Again, I can't emphasize enough that the uh, the hang up here, the obstacle is we don't have control of government. We got we got control of one house barely, and that's it. We don't have the Senate. That's required. To really do anything actionable, otherwise it's it's really kind of political publicity more than anything else. I, I I don't I don't criticize the House for drawing up the articles. I think it's appropriate. It's just likely not going anywhere. It could pass the House, although that's that's suspect at best because you can't lose but what three Republicans, and there there are some that. Again, represent districts where this may not be popular, and they want to get reelected. There are some, such as I would say, uh, Congressman Michael Guest represents the third district. Mississippi was on the show last week talking about it. Fully supports, fully supports the articles. Believes that has stated that Secretary Mayorkas has, I believe, willfully and systemically failed to uphold the law. Was his words. And has also breached public trust, which, by the way, are the, are the essence of the two articles of impeachment against him. Can that pass the House? I'd say 50-50 chance. If it does, has it got any chance of sticking in the Senate? Zero. So I guess we get symbolism, if you will, but we're not going to remove the guy. We, we're stuck with him until we get a new president. I think that's just reality. And I think we're stuck with this this uh, swath of illegals crossing the border on a daily basis and fanning out into the country again until there's just a change in government. Who's in charge? Deep Purple. Well, that's a great tune. Coming right back with the final segment of Hour 2. And then it's Dr. Al Rankins, the commissioner of IHL at 12.05. You know what that means. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. So there was a ruling this morning. Uh, Rhino, you may have seen this about Trump's, former President Donald Trump's, immunity with respect to January 6th, the incursion of the Capitol on January 6th. And it appears that um, his assertion that he should be granted immunity from any involvement in that event and any responsibility for it is has not been granted. So I don't know what this means with respect to the future of this case, but it looks like at least based on this, he could be held responsible. Is that the way you see it? That it, that the case could proceed on the basis that he he couldn't be found innocent, I guess, on the uh, on the basis of being a president and asserting presidential immunity. That's what it looks like to me. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I'm that that literally was just. This morning, right, today, that that ruling came down. Because my phone was blowing up with all the various media sources that I have notifications turned on. And as soon as I get one, if it's that kind of sweeping news event, I can expect four or five more. That was uh, that was this morning. But I wonder where that goes at this point. Hard to tell. Well, the language of the decision handed down by the three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit all boils down to really one statement. Quote, We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. Okay. All right. So, and and that's... That's that's been what's what the question's been all about from the beginning, right? You weren't actually in office on January sixth. You weren't the president, but he was on January sixth. He was still considered the president at that point. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess I'm because Biden wasn't sworn in until the twentieth. That's right. That was a couple of weeks later. So, so then what's the argument? What's the case based on? If he in fact was the president, are they just saying that just because you're the president? You're not entitled to immunity from this sort of crime, commission of this sort of crime, if in fact it's considered a crime, if you're found, I guess, guilty or responsible for inciting insurrection, because that's what the basis of the case is. They're saying that, hey, even though you're a president, you could still be held responsible, accountable, found guilty of inciting. And that the, the court has, however, said that presidential immunity does not apply here. That's the ruling today. 
So I would think we're going to proceed with the case. And I wonder if that means they'll continue to argue that, that that would be the basis for their argument, or would they maybe change their approach to the case, talking about President Trump and his defense? Would they change the approach and and um, their strategy to being one of, hey, what he did, what he said, really cannot be considered inciting insurrection. And that gets extremely subjective, of course. I mean, I haven't read the legal standards on that, but it's, it's it seems to be tenuous at best to attach that to his behavior that day, both at the podium when he was speaking to a large crowd there in Washington and then even after the incursion. What the Democrats, the left, say is that he should have stepped in and been more forceful and essentially communicated to those that had had entered the Capitol, hey, come on out. You don't need to be there. But the fact that he didn't do anything is what they're saying. Now, I, But he did. I mean, that was one of the last things he tweeted out before his Twitter account got banned. Well, he did before, right? Before they actually entered the Capitol, I thought, is when he said, be peaceful, something to that effect. While it was actually underway, is what my understanding is, that um, the, the plaintiff and um, the prosecution asserts that he should have been more forceful, more active, issued more communications, asking those who entered the Capitol to stand down. 2.13 p.m. January 6, 2021, on Twitter, Donald, at Real Donald Trump. I'm asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violence, exclamation point. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. So they believe that he should have been more forceful than that, I guess. I, I'm just repeating. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying that's been their assertion, as far as I can tell from the beginning, that hey, he just didn't do anything. So he should that, change how he communicates. Yeah, exactly. That's extremely subjective in a court of law. We're coming right back with Dr. Al Rankins from the IHL. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. You are tuned in to Middays. We're coming at you live from the Element Wealth Studio. It's the first full week of February, second month of the year, rocking right along. We welcome to the program now Dr. Al Rankins, the Commissioner of the Institutions of Higher Learning. Dr. Rankins, good to have you in. Well, it's great to be here, Gerard. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, sir. So I've enjoyed seeing you at the Capitol. I know that you, um, of course, often have business to uh, with the members of the legislature and statewide leaders with respect to what is a, a huge and important part of our state, and that is our colleges, our public colleges and universities. Uh, but recently, you just told me off the line, some uh, off the air, something that I totally agree with, which is that. 
it is important for these institutions to be financially stable. And so we have a great article that was um, uh, published on our website uh, that you that you wrote concerning the financial stability of our of Mississippi's universities and and colleges, public and uh, of higher learning, and they're in good shape. You got a really great bond rating. So being in positive and stable financial condition really positions the schools for the future. Uh, that's absolutely correct, Gerard. You know. Uh our credit profile uh, reflects strong financial oversight uh, from the IHL Board of Trustees. You know, our significant role as a system in providing higher education uh, to the citizens here at the state. Uh, we educate uh, over 70,000 students. And it's also a, ref- a reflection of the scale of the combined strength of eight universities in our academic uh, medical center located here in Jackson. Yeah. So, you know, and something else we've seen, uh, Dr. Rankins, is that many of these universities are, are enjoying uh, growth and enrollment, and that's a bit unusual. There's a trend across the country where we're seeing a decline in enrollment, and in many universities, even some of the household names, as you know, are struggling financially as a result of that. So what are we doing here in Mississippi? Well, I think uh, our universities provide a, a great value. Uh, we have a lot of interest uh, with students here in the state of Mississippi. We have a lot of interest from students uh, coming from other states who see the value uh, that our universities uh, provide. We're very affordable. We provide a quality education. And I think, you know, where we sit uh, financially is a reflection of the value I think students see in the education and the services we provide. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, you well know that could really get a university in trouble is just taking on too much debt from a financial perspective. And you highlight in your article that uh, that the board and the universities have really been good stewards of the balance sheets and, in fact, have paid off a significant amount of debt going back to 2016. Your, your article states $119 million. Yeah, we, we pay a lot of attention to the market and credit ratings, and when we see the right opportunity, we uh, encourage our universities to look at their long-term debt and to refinance where they can uh, realize the cost savings. Yeah, and so you've also seen some savings just through uh, consolidation of certain services that are procured, such as insurance. You talk about that in the article as well. Uh, give us a, Tell us what's going on there. Yes, Gerard. Well, you know, the value of uh, being a system, we can find uh, efficiencies. And prior to uh, the board taking the action that you, you mentioned, each individual university had their own uh, insurance policies, paying their own premiums. And the board decided uh, to combine uh, uh, all of those policies under one and uh, realized a, a tremendous uh, cost savings you know, in the uh, market uh, uh, of about uh, $120 million. Wow. So just just combining their purchasing power, essentially, just uh, allowed the universities to, to get just a better better deal. 
yeah, on yeah. this procurement. Yeah, that, that savings, let, let me correct, was about $105 uh, okay. million. And not only did we receive uh, a, a big cost savings, but it allowed the universities to actually insure more buildings. Oh. Because uh, prior to that point, some of the buildings, based on their age, they just couldn't afford to insure. But but not only did we receive a savings, we also were able to insure uh, more buildings on our campuses. Wow. So you improve coverage and reduce premiums. That's the best of both worlds uh, oh, yeah. right there. Uh, so y- you told me offline the IHL board meets, uh, there are 12 members. Is that right? 12 members. uh uh, on the IHL board, uh, they are uh, volunteer members of the board. Uh, contrary to to <laughs> to, to uh, popular belief, they don't get paid a big salary to serve. Uh, they they volunteer. Uh, they're lay members. They come from very diverse backgrounds. Uh, we have business owners. We have venture capitalists like you, Gerard, uh, and uh, uh, doctors, lawyers. So. Uh, because of their diverse backgrounds, they they each provide a a a, a niche and a skill set that that, that help uh, uh, our universities as we tackle these heavy issues. Just different perspectives, um, really a cross section. Uh, I've reviewed the the, um, uh, the board as well, and uh, looks like a great group. All appointed by the governor, right, for nine years. I think is that right? They're appointed by the governor. They serve. Uh, nine-year terms. Of course, they have to be confirmed by the Senate. Senate, yeah. Uh, so, uh, as do all appointments. Yes. S- same process. Mm-hmm. So th- they they really do take a vested interest in ensuring that these institutions are financially stable and that they also have all the assets and resources they need to thrive, to attract students, and to really produce uh, great graduates. Well, they take their responsibilities in in governing our universities very seriously. Uh, We spend a lot of time uh, looking at numbers, looking at the finances, uh, because, you know, you know, we get part of our funding uh, from the taxpayers of the state of Mississippi, and we have a responsibility to be good stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. Yeah, and and, and that means uh, uh, putting them to good use and not mismanaging those funds and and keeping our universities on sound financial footing. Yeah, and of course, uh, the universities also, uh, virtually all of them, have um, some some sort of campaigns where they're looking to. Uh, to raise private funds as well uh, that service the university. That's a big part of of university and uh, ecosystem. Uh, the support that our universities receive from from alumni and and and, and friends at university is very critical to their operation and them being able to be successful. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's very critical. Uh, fundraising is a big part of the responsibilities of our chancellor and president. So. Uh, it's it, it's it, it's very important uh, for our universities, and we're thankful for the support that we receive. Yeah, and there there are lots of um, out of state uh, foundations and interests as well that provide grants uh, to universities for various purposes. That's an important part of the ecosystem of certainly the financial ecosystem. Yes, Gerard, it is. Uh, you know, competitive grants that our faculty uh, go after to help support uh, research and to help support. Uh, various services we offer on our campuses is very important to our operation as well. Yeah, um, UMC in particular, right, the School of uh, Education, but you've got just a huge research component of UMC that relies quite a bit on private funding uh, to conduct research. 
you know, UMC represents about uh, one third of the operating revenue for the entire system. So it's, it's, it's very important. That's a high exposure area for, for, for us. So, uh, our board pays a lot of attention to uh, the operations of the medical center because it's such a big piece, uh, of our system. And again, you know, uh, Patient revenue is a big, big one for the medical center, but those funds that you mentioned uh, coming in from other sources to help the operations uh, are also very important as well. A huge employer as well is UMC. Maybe the second largest in the state, I believe. Very huge employer, very important for the state, very important for the Metro Jackson uh, uh, area in uh, what they provide, not only from a health care perspective, but from an economic development perspective as well. Yeah. And, and a sprawling campus. Looks like they're always adding. Um, and, of course, in the last couple of decades, uh, the children's wing, the children's hospital has been just a remarkable addition uh, to the UMMC well, system. We have some great uh, individuals in the state that, that recognize the value of, of, of what the children's hospital provides for our state. Uh, uh, raised a lot of money to help support what they do, and we're so appreciative for that support uh, and the growth that we've seen at the medical center. If if you're not growing, you're not moving. Yeah, so very proud of our medical center. If you can hang around, uh, want to see, uh, get your thoughts on this name change situation up there at uh, MUW. Sure. Coming right back with Dr. Al Rankins, the commissioner of the Mississippi Institutions of Higher Learning. Stay with us. Super Talk Mississippi. Two, three, four. in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Dr. Al Rankins, the commissioner of the Mississippi Institutions of Higher Learning. So, Dr. Rankins, uh, something that has been all over the news, I guess, the last couple of months is this name change for the Mississippi University for Women up in um, the Columbus, Mississippi area. And, of course, there was a name that was introduced that uh, really wasn't received very positively, and so they've kind of gone back to the drawing board. But you were just explaining to me sort of the, the, the process of, of actually affecting a name change. Can you describe that for the audience? Sure, Gerard. Well, the ultimate authority to uh, change the name at MUW or any of our universities rests with uh, the legislature. Okay. So uh, if... You know, the university and, 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 and its constituents and family can coalesce around uh, a name uh, that ultimately would have to be placed into a bill and, and taken up uh, by the legislature to uh, 
in effect have a name change. Okay, so so this uh, this authority does not rest with the board of IHL. That's no, the main thing. Then. No, it rests with the legislature. Okay, uh, the board do they have, kind of have a position one way or another on a new name or the name change in general? Well, Gerard, the board uh, took the position of uh, supporting uh, the university's effort to explore uh, a name change, okay. but did not take any action regarding any specific name. Okay, so they don't, they haven't really stated a position on a specific name. No. Really, more just in general, generically, um, they support the idea of exploring a possible name change. Correct. Okay. And so, but whatever happens, so would the university then submit that to the legislature, or would it require someone in the legislature uh, taking that to um, the process of creating a bill, a measure to do that? It would require, uh, based on uh, whatever name the university uh, lands on, it's going to take a uh, member to sponsor a bill. Just like uh, any other legislation. Yes. Same process. Same process. Yeah. Uh, and then that would have to pass both houses and get, I assume, signed by the governor. Correct. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, at this point, there's some some uh, alternative names that are different from the very first name that was suggested, proposed by the university as a replacement to the current name. Correct. And uh, some of those have kind of been, I guess, released out in the public square, and there are people that have uh, mixed feelings about that. I think it's fair to say. Well, I we'll think see it's, where that lands. Yeah, I think it's fair that, uh, you know, it was a, a rocky rollout. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the university is working hard trying to uh, get everything uh, back in the road. And we'll just, we'll just have to see what happens, Gerard. Human nature, as you know, Dr. Rankins, is people just are resistant to change. And and, um, and so if you're going to change, it, it needs to be something that people say, yeah, that improves. That makes it better. Well, I'll say that uh, the... Uh, uh, alumni of our universities, they're they're very supportive. They're they're very passionate, and and they have their opinions. And uh, you know, we'll just have to see uh, what ultimately happens. Okay, which they're obviously entitled to. Yes. So we talked about um, just the great financial condition overall of uh, the university community in the state of Mississippi. Uh, Delta State is one that that has certainly been struggling financially and and has seen a decline in enrollment. Uh, a new president has been on board for now less than a year, I believe, right, Dr. Ennis? Yes. And um, we interviewed him right after he came on board, and, uh, gosh, he's energetic, and uh, he's committed to uh, to a turnaround there and uh, getting the university back on sound financial ground. Is there anything to report there? Uh, not a whole lot to report. Uh, he gave a lot of information when he was on uh, the show a little while ago. Yeah. It's just going to take some time. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the university didn't get in the position they're in now uh, uh, overnight, and, you know, they're not going to get out overnight. It's going to take time. So uh, President Ennis, he's going to have to put some things in place to to right the ship and sustain that, you know, over uh, several fiscal years. But I'm now, this is an area, um, Dr. Rankins, where the board could provide um, some input and perspective and, and guidance as, as he undertakes this journey to kind of get the ship back on uh, back on track here. Mm-hmm. Is that true? The board is advising him in that capacity? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, we've had a lot of conversations with uh, Dr. Ennis and, uh, you know, my staff and my office, we evaluate 
the financial position of all of our universities annually. Okay. And I'll follow up with the chancellor and the presidents about some specific goals uh, moving into the next, next fiscal year. Uh, so I'm excited about uh, the opportunity of Delta State and uh, the leadership that Dr. Ennis will provide in, in moving them forward. So given that the universities, uh, Dr. Rankins, receive uh, public money, state public monies, they are subject to an audit by the state auditor, correct? Yeah, we, we have to undergo uh, an annual audit uh, every year uh, that we submit, and, uh, you know, that's that, that's a routine process for sure. us. Sure, so. sure. Is there an additional audit performed by an external private public accounting firm, or, or are they just required to be audited by the state auditor? Uh, we're re- required to have an annual audit. We uh, utilize an external uh, audit firm okay. uh, to uh, conduct those audits, and, uh, you know, we submit that information to the state auditor. Okay, you submit that. So yes. the state auditor doesn't actually perform the audit. Right. Uh, which is which is typical for some other public sector entities right. in the state as well. Right. But they are required to uh, submit, provide their audit, their full audit package, their That's report correct. to the state auditor. That's correct. For review. That's correct. Okay. So if the state auditor sees anything, has any questions, they would obviously refer those to the, the third-party auditor, the That's external right. auditor. That's right. Okay. And do they, uh, again, do they present those audit reports to the board or to university management? How does that work? You said your staff reviews them when they come in. Yeah, well, it's presented to uh, our board, and it's a public document. Okay. Uh, it's posted on our website so the taxpayers can review it uh, uh at their perusal, and yeah. uh, it's, it's a public document. Okay. And I honestly haven't heard anything. You know, I haven't heard anything from the public as far as having any concerns about those audits. So mm-hmm. they uh, seem to have been clean and, and uh, received without uh, any any um, any talk, if you will. You'd know if that weren't the case because oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, there's, a, there's a tendency to speak up if uh, they feel like that there's a need to do so. But, okay, so I understand that process now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you've you got uh, – you, you said nine-year terms. It used to be 12 years, did it not? That changed somewhere along the line. Yeah, it, it, it for the changed. For the members of the board. Yeah, it changed from 12, and I think it scaled down uh, from 12 to uh, 11 and then down to it's currently nine. Okay. Okay, so in Mississippi is a bit unique, is it not, Dr. Rankins, in that we have one central board that is responsible for oversight and governance for all of our institutions. In many states, states each public institution has its own its own body, its own board. Yeah, we are a little unique uh, here in the state of Mississippi, where we have one governing board that governs all eight public universities. That's yeah. correct. Responsible for all of them. Yes. And, and a point you made earlier that uh, I bet a lot of folks in Mississippi don't know is that when you when you look at just funding and revenue and, and the, the financial picture, uh, how big UMMC is as a, as a component of the overall university community from a financial perspective. You said about a third, right? About a third of our operating revenue is generated uh, at the medical center. So it's a huge part, and we have to pay a lot of attention to what goes on at the medical center because it affects, you know, the the, the overall financial picture of the whole system. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's a statewide impact, what mm-hmm. goes on there. 
Yeah. And it's a big operation. Yeah. A lot of employees. Um, and you've got the clinical side. You've got the research element. And then you've got the education side as well. Yes. And we have to pay attention to all because they're all vitally important to our state. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, yeah. uh, uh, Gerard, you know, uh, our system would not enjoy uh, the uh, credit rating we currently have without strong support that we receive from Governor Reeves, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, uh, Speaker White, uh, and also uh, our leaders, both on the House and Senate side, uh, in appropriations and in, in finance, in the Senate and in ways and means in the House, as sure. well as universities and colleges. So we, we've got some good leadership in the legislature. Uh, that we work with and we appreciate their support and we wouldn't be able to do the things that we do and have such a strong credit rating without that support. I appreciate you pointing that out and, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, the Mississippi's blessed with uh, a fantastic complement, world-class uh, institutions of higher learning and we want to keep that going and we want to keep making them better and seeing them grow and, and it's really good news to see that they're in such good financial shape. So my compliments to to you, uh, Dr. Rankins, and uh, to the board, and to all those involved in operating and managing these universities. It's a big task. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Gerard. We've got some good leaders at our universities who, who work hard to provide our students with a, a quality education at an affordable price, so we appreciate it. Appreciate you coming in. We're coming right back, folks. We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 huge news. Huge, 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 huge. You need to listen to this. Yeah. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. Love is a burning thing. And it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire Okay, have you, have you seen the generative AI rendition of that? you seen that? Oh, yeah. Where they show the, uh, uh, the, the what do you call it, the, the sound depicted graphically? I'm not exactly sure what that means, but how you do that. But there's they're measuring equipment, right, that it can do that and um, actually measure the tone and all the other features of of music. Or yeah, kind of like the, the visualization feature on MP3 players. Yeah, that's that's right. And so when you which see all that's those, doing is it there's a, a range of frequencies that you can hear. It assigns numbers to each of those frequencies. And then does math. It's math. That's yeah. right. It just digitizes it, essentially. But uh, when you see those stacked, the actual real Johnny, Co- uh, Johnny Cash version and the AI-generated version, it's like almost perfect. You well, can't because tell. it has something to pull from that yeah, is to generate. Much, yeah, yeah. It it uh, it trains it essentially. So that's what generative AI does. Whereas if you had the same AI generating Johnny Cash's voice singing Barbie Girl by Aqua. Probably not going to be as dead on. With struggle, it struggle with that. Totally agree. But that's it's fascinating. And, and who was it, the artist, that uh, 
was it Laney? What's her name? Wasn't, wasn't she the one that um, I, I think was testifying last week or in discussion somewhere? Heck, I can't remember. I, I'm not current on all those on all the more current artists. But uh, yeah, Laney Wilson. Yeah. Okay. That apparently uh, some some AI tools were were used to generate some content that I think was essentially ripping off her voice, her talent, and was being sold, right? Being replicated yeah. and being sold. And, and of course, this is a problem. And, and there are some states that have already passed legislation that, that makes that essentially a crime if you do such. It's, it's uh, works, private works like that. Uh, if you rip them off and you use them, to produce revenue or just replicate them in general and promote them. I think that's all considered an invasion of privacy and, well, and, in the and instance a of, violation of intellectual property. Yeah, the intellectual property is where it gets sticky because an AI cannot generate something out of thin air. It's doing it based on a set of data. So in the instance of Laney Wilson or Johnny Cash or any other musician or artist, the the sticking point is the AI has to train itself on that artist's material. So is the AI breaking copyright law by utilizing that artist's material to generate something new? Because a person can do that and as long and there are legal guidelines and boundaries on what you can and can't do as far as copying someone's work versus being inspired by their work. Yeah. So that's that's why I don't really trust Congress to get it right because they know even less about it than I do and I I'm just barely scratching the surface on my understanding of what it can do from what I understand. Well, I share your concerns there for sure. I mean, I, I totally agree that when Congress gets involved and and they try to make laws around this that they 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 end up uh, with the old unintentional uh, consequences, right, that that harm and impede use of the technology for, for public benefit or societal benefit. Yeah, I agree. Like, if I, as a person, as an individual, as an artist, were to take, say, Van Gogh's Haystacks and recreate it with crayons from scratch... I don't think that would be a copyright violation to then sell those prints because, A, the timetable of when the, the work was created, and, B, I changed enough of it to make it mine. It was inspired by, but not a direct copy of. The problem with AI is there's no inspiration in there. So if they if an AI did the same exact thing, if it took Van Gogh's Haystacks and digitized it with a crayon filter, did the AI break copyright law by doing so yeah i mean so that you could i think you could assert that a person's voice and their and their use of their voice or other artistic skills to produce revenue is proprietary to the individual producing it and you're right ai has to use that proprietary work to recreate or generate, that's why they call it generative AI, because it generates new content. But it's doing that uh, by scrubbing and analyzing and applying all kinds of really sophisticated algorithms to existing content and assimilating all that, producing 
new content. And that's what they did with Johnny Cash. And just seeing those stacked side by side and hearing, it's like, well, I can't tell the difference between Johnny Cash, the real Johnny Cash, and the AI-generated Johnny Cash. And that's that's scary. I get it. Uh, but again, uh, I've seen where some states have enacted legislation that essentially prohibits that and makes it a crime. Now, I'm simplifying it, but in general, you can't use AI. But kind of like our debate over the border bill, where we have laws already in place that could That's fix true. the problem, the same applies to creating a whole new law focused on AI. If you already have copyright law, then you probably just need to shore up the copyright law. Yeah, You need to clarify how AI fits into the existing laws we already have, not try to make something new with little to no understanding of the process as it stands now and the potential for the future. Well, that's a good point. And it, it's, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We already have laws against it. We just have new tools, essentially, that um, have uh, stand a better chance or maybe make it easier, shall we say, to violate existing law. So do we need something that kind of uh, addresses that that new frontier with some nuance there? Maybe. We don't need a whole new set of laws, though. I would agree with you. We already have laws, just like there's a good, good example, good analogy. We already have that with respect to the border. Those laws are in place right now. We just need somebody that cares about enforcing the law, has an interest in enforcing the law. And by the way... Well, he's got an interest now that the polls say he should. Right. Just spent... <laughs> better part of three and a half years saying no it's not a problem uh, very true so I, I just saw the uh senate majority leader chuck schumer here on the television in the studio and he's basically blaming this on trump the failure of the legislation or what appears to be the imminent failure of this border package in the senate he's uh laying the blame at the feet of former president donald trump and that's because Donald Trump came out and described the legislation as, quote, horrendous. And he said this really doesn't, this really doesn't uh, achieve the goal of securing the border. I think he's right. Now, they'll also point to statistics that show that former President Barack Obama deported more than former President Donald Trump. I haven't actually reviewed that data, but I think what anybody with, with uh, the ability to see can easily compare what's happening today to what happened during the Trump era. It's just pretty clear that the border is on fire being overrun relative to where it was then. Now, it could be that we had fewer deportations because we had fewer crossings. I don't know. Again, I haven't looked at it, but I don't remember this, and I don't think any reasonable person does, being the huge problem that it is today. I don't remember mayors... And uh, municipal and state leaders saying, hey, look, we got to do something. I don't remember that. Well, considering last year alone we're dealing with a number north of 2.5 million illegal immigrants that we know about. Okay. Compared to, oh, I don't know, let's go back to 1980, the Refugee Act that set an annual cap of 50,000 refugees. <laughs> or uh, even farther back, 1976, that sets a quota of 170,000 annual immigrants from the Western Hemisphere and 120,000 annual immigrants from the Eastern Hemisphere. Yeah. Seems Sean, like it's a bit of a bit of a bigger issue today than it's ever been before. And, and so that that 
And that's important to the, this analysis here. That's totally right. Everything's relevant. And uh, there's, there's got to be some relevance injected into this discussion. And there just isn't. This is, it's all political. It's what it is. No, no, it's Donald Trump. He's the one that's causing this, this bill to go down in flames. Well, and of course, that their, um, their position there is that, well, Donald Trump wants it to go down in flames so that he can be elected as president and then he can, be, he can fix the border and take credit for it. Now, that to me seems like a pretty long stretch. I don't know that the former president would denounce legislation if it truly did um, shut the border down. But more importantly, to your point, why doesn't Joe Biden do that today? He has the means to do so legally. He has the power, the control to do it today. He certainly doesn't need money for Ukraine to shut the border down. We're coming right back. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. talking earlier about former President Donald Trump in his quest for immunity, presidential immunity, in the face of these charges that he incited insurrection on January 6th when the there was an incursion of the U.S. Capitol. Ray in Long Beach says, so basically it is illegal for a sitting president to remind the citizens of his country that they have a right to peacefully protest and let your voice be heard, but certain factions of the public burning down privately owned businesses and destroying public and private property and killing citizens in the streets is a mostly peaceful protest. So I just want to clarify something, that the president, uh, this ruling does not obviously convict the president of inciting an insurrection, which is what he's been charged with. It it simply is a ruling that says that presidential immunity does not apply here. So he his case cannot be defended on that basis. What this this lower district US district court has said, quote, the office of the president does not confer a lifelong get out of jail free pass. That's what the judge said, ruled against granting Mr. Trump presidential immunity. This simply means that that uh, the case will proceed, that he will be a defendant, and that the court will essentially try him for inciting uh, insurrection. That's all it means. He, he can't um, be defended on the basis, and in the in the case won't be dismissed as a result of presidential immunity because this lower court has said, "Yep, you don't have presidential immunity from this charge." Essentially, so we'll see where it goes from here. I just want to clarify that. I, I hear you, though, uh, Ray. It is upside down. It is a, it is two tier system of justice. It is a double standard. It is crazy. I totally agree. 
It's also kind of hard to criminally convict someone of inciting an insurrection when exactly zero people have been charged with insurrection. insurrection. Totally agree. Agree. But that I believe that is the essence of the case, is it not? I mean, other uh, because otherwise, if it weren't insurrection, which is illegal, I mean, just encouraging people to protest their government's not illegal. It's almost like the charges are politically motivated. <laughs> almost, <laughs> unbelievable. But I, but I hear you, Ray, and it is it is sickening. Would this not be appealed to the Supreme Court? Says Karen and Ripley. So I, I hope that. Um, we clarified that for you. I don't know if they'll appeal this lower court ruling of presidential immunity to the Supreme Court. I've, I've seen no statements to that effect at this point. I don't know. And, I, and I'll, I'm not even sure if it can. Yeah, I don't think you would appeal a procedural hearing to the Supreme Court. I think it would simply be used as evidence to overturn it should the case go against Trump, and then it get appealed to the Supreme Court. The more likely scenario is what you described. Uh, I, I agree with you. And, and honestly, even if you could, uh, you could see the Supreme Court likely rejecting the case. They don't. They don't have to hear cases, as you know. They they can vote, make that decision. I don't see them taking it up. Honestly, um, now, like for example, if you're just in a regular trial, just regular Joe versus the the state, and the prosecuting attorney does something procedural that they shouldn't have. Yeah. You you don't immediately appeal that mistake or that nefarious intention of the prosecutor immediately. You wait till the trial's over, and then that is your reason for appeal. Yeah. You need a ruling from a lower court, essentially, a verdict. David and McComb says, if we weren't paying many of our own citizens not to work, there would be far fewer illegal immigrants coming here for jobs they won't do. Being a nanny state bears much of the blame for the illegal immigration crisis. But I'll point this out to you, David. If you look at the labor participation rate, it's not a whole lot different today than it was during the Trump era. It's it's pretty level with what it was then. So um, I, I get it. The nanny state maybe comes into play in that that is is uh, incentivizing people not to work. They feel like they got enough income to just sit on the sidelines. But that really hasn't changed dramatically. What's changed, in my view, is we have a president that basically from day one said, come on in. I mean, he just extended an invitation to the world and refuses and then reversed all the Trump era policy and refuses to shut the border down. Now, I've said, David, for years that I support ending the minimum wage as a way to curb illegal integration. And the reason that I think that could work, I would hope, is that right now there are lots of employers out there in this country that have illegals on their payroll or or sideways, if you will, maybe not officially, that they're paying less than minimum wage to. And they're not paying all the obligatory taxes and so forth. If you ended that and got people off the couch and filled those jobs, yeah, we'd all be better off. But it's not popular to talk about ending the minimum wage. We're back with you again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.